God has been so wild lately. He doesn't seem to listen, he doesn't obey my commands, and we can't even bribe him with treats. He's gotten so out of hand, he may even have to be put down. God is not the problem here. The problem is the people who want to be the leader of the pack. We reintroduce God. We retrain people. You're listening to The God Whisperers. Hey, you're listening to the world-famous God Whispers. I'm Craig D'Onofrio. And I am Bill Swirler. Yes, you are. You're so wise. Well, I don't know about like that. Like a miniature Buddha yeah. covered in hair. Yeah. <laughs> let, let, me, let, let, me, let me just summarize what, what this past week of my life has been like. Okay, this is just... Mm. Sure. He's only sitting as me in you. These two only is talking to each other. Understand, I can only talk to me and give my understanding. I cannot talk to anybody else and give my understanding. So the me resides in this as me, is residing in all of that as me. So that me, through this me, talking to me. That's that summarizes the entire week of my life right there. <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm, I'm sitting. The Swami. I'm, we got we to find out who this guy actually I'm is. I'm sitting in front of people and I'm not talking. Like, I'm not talking to you, Craig. I'm talking to human understanding. You're talking to me. Oh, I'm talking to and human I'm understanding. To and, and it's the me talking to the me in you. And the you wow. in me resides in me. And human understanding. So, in other words, we are never talking directly to each other. We are always talking through human understanding. The me in me and the me in you. You're so wise. And, and th- this, is, this, like this is like miniature Buddha. Every conversation that I seem to be having lately is I'm <laughs> talking to myself, basically. That's what, it, that's what it is. I'm just talking to myself. So there. I'm done. Craig. I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm done. How are you, Craig? How's life in Cleveland? Are, are you gonna, are you gonna start referring to yourself in the third person? I am. I, I think you should. I, yes. Bill says, Bill isn't, <laughs> Bill isn't pleased with what you said, Craig. You're, you're, you're just turning into Denny Crane. You're just gonna walk around and say Bill Swirla. Denny that's, Crane. That's it. What's happening Bill with Shatner? Swirla. We love Shatner. Shatner's like our hero. I don't know. He is he is timeless. That guy is in his eighties, and he he's he, he just keeps going. He's he's amazing. Yeah. Well, one it, of these days he'll just do the Stan Lee and fall over. <laughs> now he's gonna fall from I a horse. I was sad. He's gonna fall from a horse on his head. Stan Lee. That's right. I'm not a comic. I book, a little. I'm not a comic book person, so it doesn't affect me. That's like that's like when Bourdain killed himself. Okay. That that was very very traumatic. Uh, but Stan Lee died. He was he was in his nineties though, wasn't he? Ninety five, I think. And yeah. and what was he? Was he a cartoonist? Is that he the, like the, the? Well, yeah, he invented Spider Man. Yeah. And, and, okay. You know the X Men, and he invented all sorts of superheroes. Wow. He, he, World War Two vet. He uh, 
In World War II, he, he didn't see action, but he ended up in some sort of arts and crafts arm of the army or something like that. I can't yeah, that, that that happened to a lot of people who have create had creativity and yeah. whatnot. But why? Well, yeah, no, that that is kind of a loss. I mean, and those have really um, achieved some level of comeback now with the comic book based movies that are out, right? Right. Yeah. So uh, you know, we need to have Ellie on. To talk about that because she's she's Wonder she, Woman. She's she's all into. Uh, Did he do Wonder superheroes. Woman? I can't remember if that's DC or Marvel. People are screaming at their devices right now. Oh yeah, no, you those you are, should know that those are tribes. Yes, it's this no, is a very it's, tribal it's, society. So DC and Marvel, you know, heretics and Orthodox, or I'm, I don't know, you know, it's just tough. I'm kind of bi-comical in this. Whoa, in that, whoa, uh, whoa, whoa, yeah, whoa, whoa, yeah. Whoa. I mean, I go both ways, Marvel and DC. You're coming out about that. Yeah, oh yeah, I'm mm-hmm. proud of it. I'm out and I'm You're proud. You're proud? You're out. <laughs> 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 DC, Marvel, I go, I go both ways. That's you know, right. You know, are you going to be able to admit that, like at family Thanksgiving or something? Is I this... am the Freddie Mercury of <laughs> comic books. Hey, hey did, I, did I you saw see, the movie. Did you see that? Fantastic. One? Did you like that? Uh, yes, and I I really appreciate that it didn't have like a whole bunch of bedroom scenes or anything like that. I mean, it Freddie was... was a hedonist. Let's just kind of you know, yeah, he doesn't he defies label, right? Um, right. And, but he was he was an Epicurean hedonist, or or as as Walther once commented in one of his evening lectures in, in Law and Gospel, Ovid was a swine. <laughs> it's my favorite line in, in, in the, the proper distinction of the Law and Gospel. Ovid was a swine. So, you know, Freddie Mercury was a hedonist, and, and I think he represented the most hedonistic element of his day. And, and he, died, yeah. he died that way, too, unfortunately. A, a, a tortured, uh, flawed character. And genius. And and a talented, amazing, amazing talent. Talented I mean, just, entertainer. I mean, did yes. you see the stuff where he did opera with this opera singer? Yeah, his his uh, solo stuff. Incredible. He, he, yeah, Incredible. and uh, you know that Live Aid thing that that they did. Uh, it, it's been dubbed the greatest rock performance in history. <laughs> oh, really? Queen's yeah, Queen's yeah. thing. Of course, anyone can dub anything, anything. So yeah, these days, really, well, you yeah. know, uh, thanks to thanks to Trump, everything is the greatest ever, no matter what. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but uh, the, the movie was fascinating. You and, and I are you know, the greatest being, podcast on 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 air at this that's moment, true. whatever Absolutely. that moment is. I don't know what yes. is a moment on podcasting. Uh, whenever you listen to it, ah, uh, that's the Kairos, the now. Yes, beautiful, the eternal now. Whenever you push play, that's when we're the greatest. <laughs> when you push play, we are on. We're there for you. Me <laughs> resides in this as me, is residing in all of that as me. I love how he points to all of that as in you, but it's all me. Yeah. This is taking it's all about me to its ultimate and final conclusion. <laughs> Even when it's about you, it's about me. I think we should dub this me-ism. This is me as mm. ideology. This, this is me as me, residing in me and you. I really want to know more about this guy, though. Isn't that, wasn't there a song, me and you and you and me, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Oh, yeah, the turtles. Yeah, the turtles. Yeah, the turtles, yeah. Happy together. Happy together. That's it. Yeah. And then uh, all you ever talk about is you. Great hit from the 80s.
or you're so vain <laughs> you probably think this song is about you. One of the greatest breakup songs ever recorded. Oh, yeah. yeah I mean, this was not the lament of, oh, you broke my heart. It's, it's the up yours. No matter That's who <laughs> identifies with it, they're busted. <laughs> right. And even if you're right. sitting there going, she's not really singing about me, you're still busted. So this is, this is right. just genius. Right, because he just made it about you. It's a little bit like that question, you know, have you stopped beating your wife? You know, you can't you can't like answer that question in a binary sort of way because either way you're busted. See, so it doesn't work. Or like when so your the wife me uh-huh. resides in this as me. <laughs> we just kind of hit that randomly. Oh, on that's occasion. that has I I've, I've I have <laughs> like I've I've grabbed that I've hijacked that and it it will become a GW soundboard button as oh, soon, yeah. as, as soon as I recharge my iPad, but. And that is as soon as I recharge my car battery so I can get home again because I'm kind of stranded. You're uh, thumbing it. Thumbing at home. I am. Is Karen working from home today? No, she works works in the office. She's she's an office hound. She's a... Uber, man. She does... call Uber. She prairie dogs. Ah. You know, prairie dogging in the Chinese bank, man. It's just... Oh, boy. I'll tell you. But now... So she got out of the working from home thing. Long time ago. Oh, that dried up shows. on that dried up on her, and she had to she had to go back find go to find some office work. Plus, oh, hanging out at home means that she has to put up with me a lot, and so we had That's to kind of had to kind of taper off that a little bit because this happens like with retired people. I've noticed yeah. that they retire, and and you know how people say I'm retiring to because I, I want to spend more time with my family. And then after about six months of spending more time with their family, they just got to get apart because they're, they're going to kill each other at some point. <laughs> so she got tired of hearing, He's residing in all of that as me. That gets old so really fast. me. I could just imagine you walking around in your underwear talking like this, though, for like six hours at a time. You know, I can imagine that, too. <laughs> So Cleveland, how's life in Cleveland? Your sports team's doing anything notable? I, I think I saw the the Browns won, didn't they? they yeah, they, they're uh, three wins, three oh. wins. Oh so gosh, they're, yeah, they're they're uh, smoking. I think their records like three, six, and one. Or Our something Rams like that. are like nine and one. They're they're almost yeah. invincible until they Go come figure. up against a really good team like the New Orleans Saints, and then a kind of reality check. But but they're oh, they're yeah. darn good. They're they're. But doing they leave really St. Good. Louis and they start playing ball again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well. Go figure. They got this really super young coach. Um, what's his Sean Sean Mc, Sean McVay? Not not like the the bomber. Sean Sean not, McVay. Not, no relation to Timothy. <laughs> yeah, <he> actually, <laughs> my tax accountant is named Timothy McVay. <laughs> it's really That's unfortunate. Unfortunate. <laughs> I think I'd go to court and change my name like the next day. Yeah. But Sean, but and he is good. He's mature, way beyond his years. Uh, he's really smart. And he's got he's got the NFL kind of scratching their head because he's he's doing things on on field that have not been seen before, and so it's good. It's been been very good for LA football. I don't know if I told you about this, but uh, Paula, you know, she's back to teaching, and uh, she's in the inner city, and uh, she has this family that likes to torture their children. Apparently, one's kid, one kid's name is God. Oh, oh yeah, and I've his heard little about this. sister is Satan. Oh no. And then they have like this. They're like eight kids, and one of them's like Bob, like Jordan, I think it is, something like that. Jordan. But all the other ones have like awesomeness, greatness, <laughs> you know, grooviness, whatever. It, it, all these names, and then there's like Jordan, and then God and Satan, and 
is people are nuts. Yeah, but. yeah. I seem to recall there was a spell where you know in our circles people were were tagging their kids with some strange uh, names too. You know, names kind of guaranteed to get you beaten up on the playground. Right, right. You know, I always ask, you know, if, if I'm going to name a kid, I don't even name my animals like stuff like this, but if I'm going to name a kid, the first thing in my head is, uh, how much does this increase their chance of getting beaten up on the playground? Well, unless you're going the boy named Sue route, where that you're was doing great- it. Johnny to Cash. To encourage that. When basically. I was a kid growing up, that was my favorite Johnny Cash song <laughs> was ever. One. Oh, man, that was good. Yeah. We have to we have to dig that up. Maybe play a play a snippet of it and uh challenge and see see if we get sued. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Everybody else, you know, wants a piece of the GW, so let's just do that. But uh yeah, no, that's good. So um and tiki bar, it's all happening for oh, you. Oh yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's all happening. It's full. all good. Yeah. So yeah. have you have you had yet remember there are like two GW episodes, the 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 famous and then the infamous. Um D'Onofrio birthday bash. Now, we are going to, uh, I think on New Year's Day, I'm going to have like an open house for the church because I've got the 110-inch screen in the basement oh. with the video projector, and it's just all-day football and chips and dips and cocktails and punch and whatever else. You know, we so used to I do open house. Do. We used to do a congregation open house when we rented because I didn't care what happened to the house. <laughs> and then we bought a house, and, you know, our house is... It's it's a little smaller than the rental house that we bought, and the rooms are kind of small. And if the weather isn't nice and you can't go outside, it really gets crowded real fast. Right. And we did a, like two years of that, and we decided, ah, no, I'm not gonna do that anymore. And so we don't we don't do the congregation. And you know, I love my congregation, and I love when they're all together in the divine service. But I really don't like when they're all together in my house. Well, you know, they break stuff. Yeah. Yeah, steal the silverware. You know, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's just, just, just kind of like... Just as long as they don't get drunk and dance on the piano there's that. or something. I think, well, I don't I know think a, things will be okay. I don't have a piano, but but yeah, I know. <laughs> so I, I, I said, no more of that. It, it's just, it, it, no, just just enough. You know, I, I, I don't know about you. You're, you're a more sociable person, aren't you? You, 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 you're, you, you like, A, you like people, and you like to socialize with people. That, that's, that's a, I can tell you, when you throw one of those parties, you are enjoying yourself. I am in my element. No, you really are. You yes. float around. I think every guest feels like they've been paid attention to. They're well fed. I mean, you know, you get you get the the, the Hawaiian luau pork going, and well, uh, plus I'm I am Italian, so if anything's worth doing, it's worth overdoing. Yeah, and and especially in the food department, nobody leaves yeah. hungry from a Dinofrio no. bag. No, you, you take doggy bags home with you. But you you and Paula are both these kind of like these screaming outward extrovert happy people, you know, and so it's fun. I have to say, even as an introvert, I do enjoy. Um, hanging out at a D'Onofrio party, you know? It's kind of like, it's like basking in the sunshine. I, on the other hand, am just like drained for three days after I throw a party. <laughs> well, I'm exhausted also, but In a happy because, way, though, right? Yeah, yeah I mean, there's been just, a lot of energy, ex, uh, you know, making sure that everything's happening. It's just a lot of energy. So one of, on. one of my vocationally perplexing questions is, yeah, is yeah. this, is... Is the ministry today, as as we experience it, and as the church kind of expects it to be, is the ministry really an extrovert's vocation today? 
You know, I really think that congregations have their own identities, and for some, yes, and for others, no. I think some churches thrive under an introverted pastor. They're going to be thrive... small. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe not. You know, I mean, it, it, take a look at it. Most of your uh, comedians, most of your, you know, uh, public figures, a lot of them are introverts. And yeah, they, but, they, but they're not they, running churches. Yeah, they, they turn on the charm for the services, and then they delegate the rest of the week. So what you're saying really is that an introvert can survive in today's ministry if he has um, a staff, a team, a group that can compensate for that introversion. But I think it has to be compensated. I really do think that if you're a sole pastor in a congregation, I think it's a handicap. It's a liability rather than an asset. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Um, you know, on the other hand, I don't know if it's extrovert or just kind of, uh, I think it is extrovert, but if you're not there in church on Sunday, I kind of don't notice because I notice who's there. I don't really, I don't really stop oh, really? and think who's not here. Seriously. So, yeah, so, so it's like, hey, everyone's here. Let's, let's, let's do this. You that's know? And, funny. I, I, I'm the opposite. Right. I don't see you there, but I certainly note who isn't there and it bothers me. Right. Wow. So I, I have always told my, my elders, deacons, whatever, hey, I really depend on you to tell me who's, who hasn't been here for two or three weeks cool. so that I can contact them because I need your help because, honestly, I'm focused on the 100 people that are here and not the 50 that have wandered off. See, two episodes ago, we, we were um, kind of reviewing the writing career of Eugene Peterson and his book, especially The Contemplative Pastor. And I think it's in that book that he talks about not wanting to be the pastor of a church um, that's so large you couldn't remember all the people's names. Right. And at the same time, he talked about a friend and colleague who was a Presbyterian minister of like a 5,000-member church. And, and, and he didn't envy that at all. And he said, more power to him. He's really good at what he does. And, and he has the, the personality and the skills for it. But this was just not his cup of tea. And w I think we both are pretty convinced that Peterson was a true introvert's introvert. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. very contemplative, very comfortable with being alone and, and solitude and the solitary disciplines, uh, things like that. But I'm, I'm just wondering out loud whether, like, the church today that's really, um, that, that wants to be aggressive in mission and evangelism, that wants to be out in the community and, and do lots of community things and be very public and, and all that. I wonder if having a lead pastor as an introvert is a good idea. I can see where having one as kind of the quote-unquote the talent is a good right. idea. You know, in other words, if you're kind of a big people person uh, and and big organizer and leader and all of that, it's probably good to have a few good preachers and teachers handy because uh, that may not necessarily go hand in glove. I Yeah, I, I could see how, well, I mean, honestly, introverts and extroverts both have, either have organizational skills or don't. I mean, there, there are introverts with no organizational skills or extroverts with no... Uh, skills in that way also. So, uh, you know, a lot of it is um, thinking out of the box a little bit, I think, and doing what you're supposed to do, but just kind of keeping all your ducks in a row is a big part of it. 
And yeah. so, you know, looking out in the community and saying, okay, this is happening in two months. We need to get a team here, you know, to go do that and so forth. Well, and I think that's perhaps where um, we're kind of stuck in the mud a little bit is that our model has, has always been this kind of uh, sort of small rural Midwest um, church, this isolated church with its pastor and maybe a school teacher. And they kind of sort of do everything. And that's how I grew up. I grew up with a sort of one pastor kind of thing. And, and he right. actually never, I, you know, he had organists, uh, but I, he never had an assistant or anything. But, but I think when you do that, you're kind of expecting a kind of a, sort of a Swiss army knife human being that he's, he's outgoing, but he's studious. He's, he's uh, very good with people. Uh, and, and he, you know, he's contemplative. He's a great preacher and teacher, but he's really good at holding hands and comforting people. And, and I'm not sure that these, these skills all necessarily re reside in the same human being. I know they don't with me and that's what I'm, right, that's why I'm asking, right. you know, this is, this is something that has kind of plagued me for 26 years. Well, I, th I think that that kind of pressure is what burnout is made out of also. Instead of saying, hey, you know what, our pastor is really good at this, maybe we need to uh, compensate in that, you know, th this area over here that he's not that great at. Yeah, when you figure that the body of Christ is a diverse body uh, with diversely gifted members, I think it's clear from Romans 12 or from 1 Corinthians where Paul uses that body and member language right. that nobody is expected to be everything, uh, that God hasn't ordained it that way. And maybe, and I'm just kind of like planting a seed here for maybe some future discussion, that m maybe the kind of the key is a, a kind of a re-energizing of the priesthood of believers. Right. Uh, yeah. The church is a priesthood rather than the, the focus on the, the office of the ministry as the be-all and end-all. I'm not saying that anybody's saying that. I'm just saying that we kind of default in that direction. You know, I've kind of been encouraging the leadership in my church to visit uh, we have such a big number of shut-ins for one pastor. Yeah, you, you've got an enormous, yeah. enormous list. I'd, I'd crater under that list. And, uh, you know, I, I've been kind of encouraging them, and I've said, you know, the sheep and the goats, and, and God says, you know, Jesus says, when I was sick, you visited me, and when I was in prison, you, you know, you, you came and, and uh, visited me, and, and uh, you know, when I was naked, you clothed me, when I was hungry, you fed me. And, I, I you know, I was pointing out that, the sheep are saying, well, when, when did we do that? Because it's all done in Christ. But, um, y you know, the the responsibility is that we actually go and do some of these things. And the answer on the last day isn't, we paid pastor to do that. Yeah. I, I didn't need to do that because we paid pastor to do that. You know, I, I've, I've said that kind of sarcastically, not that I would ever say anything sarcastically. You know me, no, right? No, not you. No, no, no. no, no but no. I sometimes refer to myself as the resident paid professional Christian. You know, it's like in, in Buddhism, you basically give money to the temple to support the monks who actually do the religion for you. And so, so in, in essence, it's kind of like, well, let's, let's uh, pay this guy. He takes care of all the poor who come to the door. He does all the counseling. He does all the praying. He does all the outreach and, and the evangelism and the teaching and the preaching and all of this. And so we can, we're free to, you know, go to the beach, the mountains on the weekend, tend to the cabin, uh, uh, you know, check in with church once in a while, send in the check. And I, I'm kind of overstating it, but 
that's what it feels like sometimes is that we're kind of doing the Christianity thing so everybody else can do their regular life. <laughs> right. I don't think that's what the scriptures had in mind, and I don't think that's what Luther and the Reformers had in mind when they extolled the priesthood of believers as, as kind of the, the, the essential core, the identity of the church. I don't think that that's what the Bible had in mind either. No, no, and, you know, for, for Peter in First Peter 2, that's baptismal identity. I hear piano playing going on in the Oh, background. yeah, Paul has got a lesson that just showed up. Yeah, they need to practice more. I'm just saying, yeah, that, that, that lesson, that's a fail. I flunked that kid. So, so, actually, that's the way the exercise goes. It's kind of... Flunk that teacher. Da, da, da. You know, yeah, Paula. Is, Paula that, is this this like new math? Is this new piano now? New new piano. I had to play Chopin and stuff like that. What, are they just kind of like tinkling on the piano now? Is and that... the kid's like six years old. Cut him some slack. I was six years old and I had to play Chopin. I'm just saying. <laughs> wow. This, <laughs> this is after I walked to school uphill both ways. In the snow, barefoot. In the snow, barefoot, yes. Well, you were you were from uh, Chicago, so. Well, you know, I think these are things that, like, our friends at Doxology uh, wrestle with. Uh, you know, I read something on Doxology's uh, Facebook site, I think, and I commented on it that uh, the comment was that the pastor, as a family man, as the head of his household, and you know, husband to his wife, father to his children, should be modeling what a Christian. The parsonage should be a model of the Christian household. And uh, I responded something to the effect of that will happen when the pastoral office becomes uh, basically a model of Christian vocation rather than something else. Yeah. Um, Cause it lets... I, I saw on Facebook the other day someone was saying that uh, um, I think it was a pastor's wife and they kind of got run out of a parish because um, someone said, when I was going through your trash, I found four empty uh, bottles of uh, of, uh, uh, I can't remember if it was Jack Daniels or something like that. It's like, they, what? W- That's my trash. Come on. Right, right. So when I was over <laughs> no, in your Jack privacy. I, I'm not a Jack Daniels guy. Yeah, well, with you, it's a tequila. But uh, Don Julio. You know, they find four bottles of Don Julio and hey, Añejo. You know it's my trash. Right. They've got like four adults living in this house. And, <laughs> yeah, uh, and it's the day after trash pickup. But hey, right. who am I to judge? Okay. But, you know, who, A, yeah. You know, why are you not going to jail for coming over and sifting through my trash right. or something? There are I mean, laws. You're invading my privacy there here. There are laws. But <laughs> so, no, you don't want to look to your pastor as the uh, purest form of Christian piety as you imagine piety. Well, this is what drives pastors' kids deep into atheism, you know, because they live in this religious glass bubble, right. and everybody expects them to be the model child rather than the sinner saint they actually are. And so, uh, again, it's, it's this, this idea of expectations. And, and I think the expectations are basically just crushing uh, a, lot of, a lot of people in this vocation. And, and they're getting heaped on not only from congregations, but from all the externals, your peers, your church body, whatever. Everybody's got expectations to load on you. And this isn't bagging on the Lutherans. I think this is across the board, really. Yeah, yeah. So uh, anyway, it sounds like we're kind of heading into we we, I think last show we we kind of talked a little bit about uh, the various schools of theology. Oh, oh yeah, they are, yeah, that's right. I mean, this uh, when I when I tagged the show was Theologos Part Two. So yeah, this is this is my theology of soccer game thing. 
Do, do, yeah. you, want, do you want to yeah. pers- do you want to pursue that? Well, any it it kind of sounds or? like we're we're kind of heading into the whole practical no, department no. Oh, of that's theology. Here. I was going to say and, no. It doesn't sound like you're bored with the topic and want to move no, on. But the, no, hey, no, no. I was hey, trying to segue. It's uh, half. Like, it's half your show. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I was just thinking. You know, a lot of this is is caught up in the practical theology I'm, of the church. I'm game. I'm game with things that. go. So now yeah. that you bring that up. Um, Hey, I got the piano. You got the doorbell. I've got the doorbell. I hope I hope somebody <laughs> answers that. Hey, I'm going to click them in. Hang on. Here comes the gunman with the uh, assault rifle. But you're in California, so they can only have 10 rounds. So I let them in, so if you hear yeah. shooting, it's all my fault. All yeah, right. you know, being in California, the, uh, the capacity limits on your guns, you know, I'm sure that uh, all of the criminals abide by the law there. We are safe due to our gun laws. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. All right. So I'm back. So I know. I know people are dying to know how far the fires are from you. Oh, I, I thought we were getting into theology. The we fires. Are, but, the the but fires. We were just talking about guns and thank fire. You for, and thank you. Thank you for asking. Uh, yes. it, it wiped out a town called Paradise, which yeah. which is kind of ironic and strange and very 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 sad. Uh, this was a very isolated town near Chico. And there's kind of, you know, my wife always says, don't live in the woods where there's one way in and one way out. Uh, We've seen a number of sad examples where limited access has proven to be very bad, fatal. And so paradise just got wiped out and the death toll is climbing. And it's really now climbing due to people that are just nowhere to be found. They'll never find them. That's up in Northern California. Yeah, it's by Chico. Yeah, it's Northern Uh, we have uh, we have a couple of fires brewing. The, the big one, the one that's making all the news, is Malibu, and Malibu is where Pepperdine University is, and right. uh, and so it's kind of on the other side of things. We're not anywhere near the ocean, so we did have um, ash coming down on Sunday, but um, you wouldn't know from where we are now that there are fires in the vicinity. This is a very large area, and it's, it's um, an isolated area, but this is bad because this is a very densely populated area and expensive too you know there's a lot of oh, celebs, yeah, celebs and rich people living there so um but the fire is not a discriminator of what it burns down so very bad yeah keep uh keep uh, the west in general in in your prayers it, these have been very bad seasons uh the last few years very dry summers very hot and we get these Santa Anas. You remember the Santa Anas? Oh, yeah. Out here? yeah, yeah. Devil's winds. Yes, hot, dry winds coming off a the desert. Single-digit humidity. You right. know, when you have a humidity of 8%, it hurts to breathe. It's so yeah. dry. Yeah. And then uh, coupled with that is uh, apparently our utilities uh, have not been doing their infrastructural work. And, and th- these fires were triggered by um, power things, power, things on the power grid. Transformers oh, not some, or whatever. Not some dude with matches. Nope. I thought I thought the Paradise one was a campfire. Nope. It was oh. it was it was traceable. Apparently, yeah. It's interesting how they can figure out where ground zero of a fire yeah. is. But it was traceable to uh, transformer Ooh. or something like that. So yeah, not good. Not good. That's going to cause a lot of questions about you know power lines. Do you really pay attention to them? They're just up there. You know, you almost don't see them on the landscape until something goes wrong. Yeah, I was driving home from Costco a couple of months ago, and uh, one of those transformers was just arcing. Yeah, and I and I called nine one one to tell him, "Hey, you got a transformer out here arcing. You might want to send the power people out." 
and they're giving me the third degree, like I'm making it arc right. or something. Right, know? right, right. Is this a crank uh, no, call? I'm, you know, we're yeah, going to traced your call. We're going to get the FBI out after. Right, you. right. I, I'm just telling you what's going on out here. You might want to. Well, I, I think that happened in this case that they were ignoring some some signs that maybe they should take a look see. And uh, mm. the trouble is when you've got like 60 mile an hour winds, eight percent humidity, and an arcing transformer. Not good. That's, the, you know, you don't need to look any further as to what started that thing. But very, very, very bad and very sad. So so we are calling on GW Nation as part of the royal priesthood to <laughs> keep all of this in prayer. Yes? Indeed. I had to stop for a drink. I have, ah. a, I have a cold. So, okay. um, yeah, back to Teo Logos, the... the, the um, the game, if you, and I don't mean to diminish it, but it is it is it's a it's a vocation of uh, theology, and theology is not studying God, but studying God texts, God words, uh, in our case the scriptures. And so, uh, yeah, it, when you and I went to the seminary, there are four departments, right, of of uh, theology, and you kind of have to you know, you sort of spread your classes out amongst the four. And so if, if I was going to kind of expand on my theology of soccer game analogy, and I'd, I'd say it like this. So we have doctrinal theology. It's sometimes called systematic theology, uh, but we shouldn't call it that. I'll explain why. But that's basically the rules of the game. If you're going to play a game, you've got to know the rules. These are the rules of the game. And uh, so you break the rules, you get a yellow card. Do too much, you get a red card, you're out. You know, that kind of thing. It's the boundaries, uh, right. how, to, how to stay inside the lines. Um, exegetical theology in the in this sort of game analogy is how to play the game. So it's the skills of the game. So if you're learning soccer, you got to learn how to kick a ball, how to pass a ball, how to hit it with your head, where to stand, where to run the plays. That's that's exegetical theology. How how theology is done, how scripture texts are interpreted. Um, and then there's uh, historical theology. Uh, which is basically looking at old game films, <laughs> right? <laughs> so we can't watch Babe Ruth play baseball anymore, but we can watch game films. And uh, we can't uh, hear early church fathers preach anymore, but we can read what they wrote. So historical theology is kind of answering the questions, how did those guys do this game of theology in their day, right? Luther, Melanchthon, Chemnitz, Calvin, Wesley or, you know, the church fathers. It's all kind of a question of how did they do it. Um, I think historical theology is the safest one to study, actually. That's maybe why I spent most of my time there. Yeah, because, you know, <laughs> you just report what you see. You don't have to say what you think. You just have to report what you see and have the good evidence behind it, and they all praise, now, they praise you for it. Here's here's my take I on mean, look, historical, it, because I, I, I kind of am a systematician and a historian, I honestly, exegetical is not my strong suit, which is really sad for any pastor to say. Well, that's but, like saying you're that's like saying you're a soccer player, but you don't know how to kick a ball. Well, I, I'm not saying you'd I, be a good referee. Okay, you'd I'm, be a good I'm referee. I'm not saying that exegetical. I have no skills there. I'm saying that's not my strongest suit. You know, if we push but, this analogy way into the land of allegory, okay, you 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 wouldn't be a good player because you don't know how to kick a ball straight or curved. You wouldn't be a good referee because you don't really pay attention to the rules. But you'd be a great sort of color commentator in the booth. <laughs> we'll just say my short game is better than my long game. No, you'd so, be you'd be good for color commentary, you know, or maybe a coach. 
You could do coaching. You're like one of those right. coaches that can't play the game, but you can help yeah. others. You know, you know, get get the really good players out there on the field. Well, I'm deeply insulted, but yes, you should uh, be. I, I just so. <laughs> I insulted you nicely. <laughs> but I I think that historical helps you with the systematic or the doctrinal, because when you see the development of why we confess what we confess, why we believe what we believe then you can have a little deeper understanding of it all. Instead of just simply, uh, we believe, teach, and confess X, Y, and Z, but why? And and so when you see the errors that have gone back and forth over a period of hundreds of years, you get a better idea of what has gone into this. Yeah, I remember one of my historical theology professors, and I can't remember which one, said that historical theology is a study of how the gospel has fared in various eras of the church, which is a very interesting way of looking at it. But you're just kind of looking to see how has the gospel done. Right. I would go a little bit further and basically say, how have people who have engaged these God texts, these scriptures, what have they done with them? How have they interpreted them? How have they applied them to the issues at hand in their day? Because the issues of their day are not quite the same as our day, and and but we can learn from them, and and we can follow their kind of their pattern of thought. So, historical theology is great for that. But to me, it's really the game films. So you're you're watching the other players play, you're not really on the field itself, and you're not refereeing the game. You're just watching the old game films. You know, it's kind of interesting. You ever you ever hear people talk about how would Babe Ruth do today in the modern modern baseball and you can't answer that question can you no because there's no, no it's there's, very hard you know i suspect not as well as he did you know the modern player is in better shape has sharper skills the pitchers throw harder the batters swing harder uh the game is a different game than the game babe ruth played and so i don't think he would probably fare as well or he'd fare differently right but you know you can't take away his natural athleticism yeah, but the guy was in, in the, that, the guy was a hard drinking guy in the off season and totally out of shape most of the time. Well, yeah, but look he, at the guys this, today. Like, Holy he had this mackerel. crazy twenty ten vision or something sure. like that. No, he, he had you some, could see the you can see the threads on the ball. He it's had crazy. some native skills which are, are yeah. key to being great. So maybe he would have been great, but you don't really know. But see, that's what historical theology is. If somebody says, What would Luther say about this today? Answer is I don't know. Yeah. Um, I know what he said about that back then, and I could kind of use the pattern of that to try to discern that. But I really don't know how Luther would respond to some modern question that, that pops up. But I think historical theology at least gives you sort of the patterns of thought and, and where, where we've all been thinking the same, you know. Because if the, if the boundaries of the game haven't changed, and they shouldn't, then at least you can verify that, hey, all these guys confessed God this way, confessed Christ this way, uh, thought this about justification. So, you know, we've got some commonality there, and um, that's important. I do think that practical theology is the game itself, <laughs> and that's, the, that's the, the part, in like, in our training that was the least important, it seemed to us, didn't it? Well, yeah, it was the least important, but they did actually, by the time that I got to seminary, it seemed like you spent about 40% of your time in the practical department, but a lot of it was not that helpful. Yeah, see, that's the thing. It's like they, they, they've got the bucket right, but I'm not sure that we actually fill it correctly. Right. You know, do, do we actually, 
you know, what does it mean to play the game? I, I think it means to interpret text a lot. Uh, and, and I don't recall actually preaching uh, that many, like, sermons in front of my peers, say. A couple no. for homiletics, and then right. we had field work and vicarage. But it seems to me that we should be preaching constantly. If I were teaching a homiletics class, you'd be preaching on your feet, on the fly, every session. You know, it's like, Craig, five minutes, here's the text, go. <laughs> and I don't expect it to be great. I expect you to think. I expect you yeah. to, to do some 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 interpretation, um, you know, and, or counseling or catechesis. You know, Craig, five minutes, sixth commandment, go. Yeah, and 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 do that. And that's how that's how actually a class with Ken Corby was like. He gave an oral final. Oh and, wow! And he had no idea what he was going to ask you. And you'd come <laughs> in, and you had this one-on-one. We were—it was like the confessional. You had two chairs, and you were sitting there, and he would just start to hit you with things. And he just wanted to hear you think. He wanted to hear you talk. And I think if the church ever examined its pastors, like with a sort of a public exam, that's what I would do. You know, is candidate so and so catechize me on the first article. Well, by, by the time that I graduated, we didn't have the uh, the doctrinal interview on the way out the door. See, I, like, like you did. We I at mean, least you, had that. We had a committee. Yeah. We had a committee of three guys, and it was terrifying. You, you get crucified. It was it, for me. It was fun. It was a nice conversation, but still, it, there was a lot. Of, it was nervous. You had no idea what they were going to ask. Yeah, you. I was always amazed how many of my classmates, or, or not my classmates, but the I think it stopped the year before I graduated, maybe two years, but the the guys who were a few years ahead of me and you'd see them in the cafeteria reading their small catechism again. And they're like, I haven't opened yeah. this, you know, in, in a long time. That says and, something and right there. Yeah. And they're like trying to memorize the answers from the small catechism. I, I really think that, and, and I think what's happening today is you're seeing a lot of um, adjunct stuff happening to fill in that. So you have things like doxology, which, right. which are really exploring the elements of pastoral care as true care of the soul. So this is a really good thing. Uh, you have um, even some some things that deal with leadership skills, and other. That's all kind of part of the mix. As we were saying, there's an expectation that the pastor is going to uh, provide some level of leadership to the congregation, and that's kind of hard to teach, especially if you haven't done it yourself. You know, um, and I don't know about you, but I think a lot of my practical theology was just simply learned in the parish. My best professor has been my congregation. That, that's where I've learned practical theology. Yeah, I, I think uh, in the parish and uh, just in the conversations we have with fellow pastors. Yes, know, how, that's how right. Do, how do you deal with this? I don't even know how to deal with that. Yeah, you know? I, in that sense, I think our winkles have been really great. Winkles are these, these conversations monthly amongst the regional pastors or the circuit pastors where we actually just kind of compare notes and we right. talk about, you know, man, how do you handle this? I just add one of these things. Or it's like doctors getting together and consulting. Um, and that's, that's really good. But practical theology, I think, really is the game itself. And, and everybody does it. Uh, a layman in his or her vocation, being a priest to God, is a theologian in the sense that they're speaking to their neighbor about God. They're using God words and speaking from God's text, the scriptures. So uh, we're all theologians in that sense, not professional and not at the same level. You know, even a pastor is not the same level theologian as an academic theologian is necessarily. So, you know, but 
Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes you you, you got to wonder, though, uh, especially in that practical department, you get uh, some props that are great communicators but have no uh, organizational skills or something like that or, you know, vice yeah. versa. The, guy, the guys I had for practical all had very, they had long practical experience. So the, I mean, the one guy was like 25 years in the ministry or something like that. They, 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 they basically were doing a seminary teaching stint as kind of the final third of their career. Yeah, uh, I don't remember a whole lot of guys like that when I was there. Yeah, there well, there there were a couple. But, it's it's yeah. it's t- it's it's tough because I mean the the best coaches in a game are the play are the ones who used to play and right. and and so yeah, but anyway th- that's kind of the thing. I think w- with the the little bit of time that we have, it might be interesting to explore. I mean that first category of doctrinal theology. How, what is it? How do we do it? And okay, why, so why shouldn't thing, you call it systematic theology? Right, that's what I was going to ask you. Is is are, are you going with this simply the fact that when we say systematic, we put things into tidy little boxes? Well, actually, if they were in tidy little boxes, I wouldn't have a problem with it. But but those boxes are linked together, kind of like pearls on a string, so that one box is contingent on the other box. Right, right. That's a system of theology, and we've kind of. Lutherans avoid that. Christianity has avoided that in general. Melanchthon wrote a Lotze. Chemnitz wrote a Lotze. Um, John of Damascus in the East uh, collected his theology under commonplaces. Um, it really wasn't until the Reformed in the 17th century that you get systems of theology. And that those tend to try to make a uh, kind of a very tight, cohesive whole out of things rather than just collecting things as locuses and there's a big difference i think between the two so you end up with the magisterial and ministerial uses of reason and the magisterial is that you put your reason above scripture and and that sort of thing too uh, much maybe i don't I, i'm it, not it, that's, it seems that when you systematize like that things have to fit into your reason or it all falls apart maybe um Reason, I think reason gets short shrifted sometimes because we miss we misapply Luther on on that. Any time that you are interpreting a text, you're using reason. God's appealing to reason. You have sure. to use, no, you have to use reason to reason translate. You have to use reason to interpret. You have to use reason to uh, write a creed or write a confession. You know, confessions were written by smart men. They had a lot of reason going for them. Uh, just reason can't question the revelation of God. Right. That's all. You know, so it's like, reason doesn't want to let things sit in paradox or in mystery. You know, reason wants to have an answer for that too much. And so that's when you, that's when you subject reason your reason to the teachings of the church or, or the Word of God. True. So what, what, makes, what makes a doctrine, what makes it a, a, a boundary line or something? You know, first of all, I think the clear passages of Scripture... Right. Uh, you you don't you don't make a doctrine out of some strange esoteric teaching. That's why we don't have doctrines about es- we don't have doctrines about millennialism. We just say don't go there. <laughs> right. Um, Christ is returning. Judge the living and the dead. Yeah. And there. and you know the early church was pretty smart about not dogmatizing everything that you could find in the Bible because the Bible is the source of doctrine, but the Bible isn't. Not every verse or word in the Bible is a doctrine. You know, there's a, there's a difference. So clear passages of Scripture, 
But remember, those aren't proof texts. Those are, we used to call them sedes doctrinae. They are the seats of doctrine. They're the seat text, the text on which the doctrine rests. Uh, but they don't prove anything because we're not proving stuff. Doctrine is not something we invent, then we prove we're right. Doctrine is something that we see clearly in the scriptures. So the, the doctrines aren't made, they're simply discovered. They're seen and acknowledged for what they are. You with Fair me? enough. So yes. like the Trinity, you know, nowhere does the Bible say Trinity, Triunity, three and one, one and three. But when Jesus says baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, when you look at everything he said in John, when you kind of sum total all the Father, Son, Spirit talk, um, that altogether forms a locus on the Trinity, the triunity of God. That, that's a doctrine. Uh, right, and so it's not until like Tertullian where we actually have that phrase that pops up. Right, and it becomes a shorthand. It's just a kind of right. a, a, a quick shorthand so you don't have to like say lots of things or wave your arms around. I, I think there's a second principle in doctrine that's really important, and that is it has to be directly from Scripture without a lot of inferential steps in between. You know, like sometimes people say, oh, this is a biblical argument. I say, okay. Uh, where in the Bible does it say it? Well, there. And then they quote a passage. And then you say, okay, now how do you get from there to here? Okay, mm. because, because there was there and here is here. And there's kind of a pathway. So would you kind of chart out how you got from there to here? And uh, one of our guys, uh, A.C. Peepcorn, used to say that a doctrine can't be based on more than one inferential step. Okay, a good example would be infant baptism. You know, people like to point out, there's nothing commanding infant baptism in the Bible. Yeah, that's true. But it doesn't take a lot of steps to infer it from all the things that are said about baptism. You know, sure. So it's real close. But once you get more than one, two, three, uh, you're getting into the realm of pious opinion or maybe a doctrinal um, statement or doctrinal, I don't know, but you're, you're, you're away from actual a doctrinal boundary. You're basically trying to apply or explain or expound doctrine. So... Um, the one-step rule is not a bad one, and the church seems to have followed that. Everything that you say, like in the Nicene Creed, or any of the articles of doctrine in the Lutheran confessions, are all directly found in Scripture, or no more than a step removed from it. it, it it's not a, you don't have to do a lot of explaining. Rich Gilbert did that really great little trifold on the Nicene Creed where he just kind of went through yes. line by line and found some uh, passages for each one. He did, very useful. And, and it, it uh, makes the yeah. very strong point that when we say the Creed is apostolic, we don't right. mean that each apostle contributed a phrase, but we do mean that just line for line, this is apostolic teaching and can be directly demonstrated from the scriptures without any kind of explanation or hand-waving. That's a true sedes, doctrinae. Not, not proof passage, you know, here's the proof that we're right, we've got it right, but, but it, this, is, this is where the doctrine resides. This is the seed of the doctrine, right here. And, and then finally, I, just, to, just to be clear, we don't... Doctrine is not a man-made thing. Doctrine is, is, is in the Scriptures. The Scriptures, when Paul says in Romans that we hold that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law, that's as clear as it gets. You don't have to do any explanation to get there. You know, so the doctrine of justification is just screaming at you. And it's clearly not 
an opinion of Paul. <laughs> right? right. Right. You know, but there are lots of other things that we don't have a doctrine of head covering for women. You know, it's just not not happening there because you have to make a lot of inferences about that. Inferences from the culture, inferences from the intent, the context of the early church. And look at what the church throughout the ages has done with it, too. There's a lot to be said. So not everything that is is uh, doctrinal is doctrine necessarily and not everything that's biblical is doctrine. Well, and that kind of takes us to the exegetical also in that you you bring up the head covering, and uh, this is one of the passages or the sections where we also, and, you know, this doesn't stand alone, but we also say uh, we as uh, LCMS Lutherans don't abide by female pastors because of partly that section. So how how is it that in the exegetical world you determine you know, what, what is doctrine and what is uh, just kind of the tradition of the day? Well, and that's... Ceremonial, I guess. <laughs> and that's not easy. I, I think sometimes no. we act as though this were crystal clear. Um, I think the text itself, and we have one of the principles of hermeneutics, and we're jumping into the exegetical department, but one of the principles of hermeneutics is Scripture interprets Scripture. And so you're looking at the near and far context within the scriptures because we're relying on the fact that somehow in the mystery of the scriptures being handed down to us, the Holy Spirit has kind of brooded over this whole thing and that there's some sort of unified sense to it. You know, even though a bunch of authors wrote it and it was written over a long period of time, 1,800 years or so, nonetheless, there's a, there's a kind of a unified cohesive whole to it so that you can use one part to help understand and interpret another part. But that business of how it applies is a really, is, it's not straightforward. And admittedly, uh, there are some things that maybe we feel very strongly about, but not all Christians do, and maybe even the church throughout the ages hasn't. And so mm. you have to kind of like you gotta, you got to kind of honor your dead in this. This is where historical theology really comes in, and they'll say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. This has never been this way in the church before, and though we're really passionate about something now, uh, the church may not have been so uniform about that before. Head coverings are one of them. You see that, that, that they actually wrestle with this as, as you know, cultural customs change, and... Uh, and the place of women in society changes, and the, the gospel reaches into different cultures. All of a sudden, it, it raises new issues. Just like um, the Gentiles in the book of Acts, when they come in, this uh, causes some anxiety because they don't have the same customs that the Jewish Christians did. Hmm. Mm -hmm. So, uh, But that's kind of jumping the gun. Maybe next time we can do exegetical, because that's, yeah, sure. that's my playground. I, I started out in, in dogma, but because of my the professors I had, they always drove us back to exegesis, you know, and, and which was cool because I they taught us the primary skills of the game, and that's to really wrestle with text and, and to deal with the text. But one of the things about exegesis, though, it, that's sometimes overlooked is you can't dogmatize exegesis because <laughs> otherwise, otherwise you can't <laughs> interpret the text you're relying on as dogma. You know, it, 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 it doesn't work. So sometimes the exegetes, uh, you know, fall into disfavor with the dogmaticians because uh, you find out that maybe one of your 
uh, favorite passages doesn't actually say what you thought it said or something, and that, creates, that, that can create some trouble. But uh, the job of the dogmaticians is to keep the exegetes in, the, in their boundaries, and the job of the exegetes is to read the text, you know, to actually wrestle with what the texts say. So we don't have, like, we don't have formal rules of interpretation on, you know, how to read the Revelation or how to read John 6 or uh, how to, you know, interpret parables or things like that. You, you look to the text for guidance and you uh, stay within the bounds of uh, the ordinary use of language and the historical context that the, uh, the texts were written and you do your best. It ain't easy. It's not easy. There's also an overlap between these various disciplines that, that you see that comes up. You know, studying under Nagel and uh, those like him, th you see a lot of overlap. You, you cannot be a good systematician without having some exegetical st skills. Absolutely and not. Skills. No, you know, no, that's You've got to have the chops. That's crazy. Otherwise, you're just right. reciting formulae. Right, right. And, and you're helpless because somebody said, well, where is this written? Right. Which is a great, that's a great Lutheran question, right? Where is this written? And, you know, if you can't point to the where in, so, in, in Holy Scripture and justify that on the basis of its language, uh, you know, and its historical grammatical context, then you got a big problem on your hand. Then you're just basically like that guy who says, I believe whatever the church teaches. You and know. I think, you know, going into the practical department also, you can't divorce your theology from your practice. We, we see people try to do this on occasion, and you end up being something else. You, you know, you aren't faithful to your confession a lot of times if you try that. Yeah, um, yeah that can happen, I think, in two ways. One, one is if there's a danger sometimes in over-dogmatizing. Remember how we talked about how if you make the playing field too small? Yeah. The, the player, not enough players can fit on the field. The, the game gets really small. Uh, if you make the if you make the, uh, the the field too big, the boundaries too wide, then you don't really have a good game because you're just running all over the place. So there's this kind of right place. Uh, I think the creeds, and I think our Lutheran confessions, because they really don't want to go beyond the Church Catholic. You know, they say this a bunch of times. We've added nothing to the teachings of the Church Catholic. Mm -hmm. So they're like really hard pressed to say, look, we're not we're not inventing new doctrine here. We're just basically pointing out to the church what the church has always taught. And uh, so even though we have a big book, um, there isn't a lot of what I would call doctrinal stuff in the big book. There's a lot of discussion of it and a lot of, you know, the back and forth between the reformers and the papal party about it. But um, there aren't that many articles of doctrine, even in our book of Concord. And, and most of it relies on formulas from the early church, like the creeds. Right. Yeah, I was going to comment on how much they refer to uh, the fathers from the first 450 years of, of church history. Yeah, and what's, the, what's their point? Not to say, uh, you know, hey, look, uh, we, you know, we found proof texts that agree with us. They're basically saying we're not teaching anything new here. This right. is, this this is, is what the, We've always believed this, guys. This is what the universal church has always held, and, and whereas the church may differ in, in a bunch of things, these things we all have in common. I like to say that to people who think Lutheranism is you know, just kind of a, another variety of Christianity, I like to say it's basically essential Christianity. It, it basically just goes back and takes what the church has always taught and just brings it to light in a Christ-centered way. 
By the way, you know, getting back to locuses and collections, what, what makes, I think, the Lutheran approach so strong is that everything is Christ-centered. So rather than making one category contingent on the next category contingent on the next category, so that you get a slippery slope, so if one of your, one of your little categories falls over, they all tumble. In Lutheran theology, it's all centered in Christ, so that if one is wobbling, it kind of wobbles by itself, and it doesn't really affect the others so much. That's the strength of locust theology, is that you, you don't have a domino effect, or you don't have a slippery slope in doctrine, but everything is centered in Christ and flows from Christ. Um, I think it was uh, Jack Price the Third that I learned that from initially. I remember writing a paper on the descent into hell, no less, from from uh, <laughs> the formula. There's, and there's two ambiguous verses that back that up. Yes, and and yeah. why and and how this is a Christ-centered doctrine, and it's really a fun exercise because you realize that uh, that true doctrine always has Christ in the middle, and always leads to Christ and flows from Christ. So there's this Christ-centeredness about the whole thing. This is, uh, you know, I, I had him also, and, and uh, he used to say the hub is, you know, like theology is kind of like a bicycle wheel. The hub is Christ, is the gospel, is Article 4 of the Augsburg Confession, justification by grace through faith alone in Christ Jesus, and everything hinges on that. And uh, so you you have these doctrines that go off of that, and What's what's beautiful is if you take one spoke out of the bike wheel, it doesn't collapse. Right. It may be a little it, out of round and yeah. And, but but and it's not ideal. And certainly you don't say, oh, that's that's fine. I'm fine with that. Yeah, it's not disposable. But at the same time, it it isn't hinged on the other propositions around it necessarily. Exactly the point. Except it's hinged on Christ. You know, I learned yeah. that, I first learned that illustration from my catechism pastor when I was yeah. a kid. It's one of the few things that stuck with me. But here, I remember him drawing. Uh, spokes on a wheel, on a board, and putting a cross in the middle of Christ. And he says, you know, you can wobble in some of the spokes, but as long as the center is there, the thing will thing will turn. Right. And um, I think that's a really, this really, I think this makes um, Lutheran, the Lutheran approach to theology much more resilient. It's, it's a much, <laughs> much, it has a center of gravity that you don't see in these complex systems like Aquinas or the Lutheran scholastics or Calvin, uh, where everything everything kind of is so tightly bound together. You know what it's like? It's like uh, when you're trying to pop a tile off your floor and, and you end up breaking four others next to it. Hmm. But if you free it, if you free the mortar around it, the grout, and you kind of like drill it a little bit, you can selectively crack that tile and fix it. But if everything is so tightly bound together so that one thing, a wobble in one doctrine causes a wobble in everything, then you have an unstable, uh, you have an unstable theology. And I think you're really vulnerable when you take this out into the world. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we go back to Paul, I desired to know nothing while I was among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. See, if that's the hub, then you're going to be okay. Exactly. I think, that's, I think that is exactly the Christocentricity of Paul's theology. It's not yeah. that he doesn't know other stuff. He knows lots of stuff. But it's all centered in this, this, this Christ and him crucified. And from that, from that essential core, everything else can flow with, with a, a degree of confidence and nimbleness, too. Um, you know, it kind of leads me to think 
that uh, in the mission field, man, my doorbell is busy here. You're a popular guy. Uh, in, in the mission field, the um, things are messy. And yeah, you, oh, you yeah. see that in the book of Acts. Man, is it messy. It's like tohu abohu out there. Yeah, you got to live a little faster and looser than you would in an established parish. <laughs> well, and you're hitting you're hitting questions that have never been asked or circumstances that you've never encountered. But if you're anchored to Christ, um, you have a real high degree of confidence in in the face of all of this uncertainty. It's like Paul at Mars Hill. You know, he's he's encountered idolatry. He's 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 got the 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 Athenian you know the Athenian philosophers who just want to kick around new ideas. And um, he's able to use a Greek poem, a hymn to Zeus. I mean, he's doing all kinds of stuff. And he anchors it in the death and resurrection of Jesus, right. which is really kind of genius. Um, I think when we talk in, in-house, I, I think we speak a lot more tightly, doctrinally and carefully. When we are outside the church, the game is a little bit more wide open because uh, people don't know all the rules of the game. They don't know the shorthand, the lingo. And so that's why the mission field always has that kind of, I don't know, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a more wide open game. Yeah, it's, it's the, the Wild West, game. even yeah. if you're in the East. <laughs> <laughs> I like the, the, a long time ago, I think it was in the Concordia, the, in the CTQ, I think it was published in the Theological Quarterly, uh, A.C. Peepcorn, who was one of our professors, uh, basically reminded us that we're not bound to every syllable in the Book of Concord, or its opinions, or its philosophies, um, its its uh, notions of science. You know, like garlic juice actually doesn't demagnetize iron, though they thought it did. Uh, and even their pious opinions, like the ever virginity of Mary, or Jesus being born out of a closed uterus miraculously. These are um, these are just pious opinions and old ones too. But he reminded us that what we are bound to are the articles of doctrine that are the, the framework of the Church Catholic. And that's what the confessions present uh, very, very brilliantly and have been a great tool for us is to, to call us to those things and keep us in the boundaries. So hmm. uh, we do well to respect those because uh, utter chaos results when we don't. I believe that you're right, and I think we're probably pretty much out of time. Awesome. So what do you think? Next time we'll we'll talk about exegesis, interpreting the Bible, Sounds how to good. read God's word, God words. God, I like God words with a hyphen, God words. God words. God words. <laughs> yeah, we're going to have to talk about this a little bit. Uh, well, hey, way to go, Craig. <laughs> so thanks for listening once again. We appreciate all of our listeners and their support. You can... Like us on Facebook. Love Craig. You can like me. I'm okay, but love Craig. I needs, just want to be loved. loved. You can follow us on uh, t- on iTunes or Google Play or Stitcher or whatever your RSS feed on your device thingy that you like listen to podcasts with. Uh, we're on all of them. You can access the complete archive, the body of the GW work at uh, godwhispers.org. And, of course, you can email us with your pressing questions on Teologos at godwhispers at gmail.com. So until next time. Take her easy, dude.